to the Cumra Dorian and thank you for listening to our podcasts. Our speaker is Professor Wynne Thomas, OBE, Professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Swansea. And the subject of his talk is Emily Humphreys at 100, a retrospective. It was recorded at a Cumra Dorian event in April 2019. We hope you enjoy listening. This is the third occasion for me to address the Cumra Dorian. Um, the first is when I published a book on a remarkable writer called Kitchener Davis, and that goes back some almost 20 years now. The last time, and it was in this very room, it was to talk about Dylan Thomas. And uh, of course, uh, that was in the centenary of Dylan Thomas. But by then, Dylan Thomas himself had been dead some 60 years. I didn't really expect on that occasion to be back for the occasion of another centenary, so to speak. And this time celebrating the 100th birthday of, of a living writer. And it gives me great pleasure to do so, since Emir and I are old friends. But I also feel very pleased I am to see his oldest son, Dewey, here, and his wife. And also uh, Dewey's son, and Emir's grandson, although I regret to say he plays rugby for Israel, and not for Wales. Something went wrong there, I reckon, but there we are. I remember it well. That is, uh, the occasion when I first met Emmett Humphreys, I was introduced to his world of fiction and world of Wales. The date was the early 1980s, and at that time I was, believe it or not, a specialist in American culture, and uh, heading for a big book published by Harvard on Walt Whitman. I knew very little at that time about the Anglophone, that is English language literature in Wales. The location when I met Emmy back then was Ferryside. Now, some of you may know Ferryside as the harbour village directly the opposite side of the Towie from Dylan Thomas's Clan Stefan. And that positioning has come to seem to me to be very appropriate because, in so many ways, Emil Humphreys is Dylan Thomas's Welsh opposite, his polar other. Emir is a nationalist, a resident campaigner for the Welsh language and his culture, yes, but he's also a reticent North Wilian. Contrast to the Boyle's South Wilian's garrulousness. And in, in its original version, um, Emir's classic and prize winning early novel, A Toy Epic, it, uh, in its day, 1957 58, was it? It won, of course, the top prizes for the UK uh, for fiction. That prize-winning early novel, A Toy Epic, it went originally under the title A Tree Llaes, which is the three voices. And that was appropriate, since it was uh, written as a radio drama <laughs> to be broadcast by the BBC in Wales just five years after Dylan Thomas's play for voices, as he subtitled it, Under Milkwood, had taken the airways by storm. And those of you who know Under Milkwood know, of course, it relates to a, a small village in the southwest of Wales, 
offer, offering you the colourful fictional portrait of life there. Toyapic, again the polar opposite, diagonally opposite, because it gives you some sense of what it was like to grow up in the 1930s in what the novel itself calls the north, the north east corner of Wales. Very little regarded, still overlooked, because it is there, of course, that Emir was born, there that he grew up. I'll come back to that location and its importance in a minute. But first, let me, let me take you back again to Ferry's side and our first meeting. Now, he and I were both of us speakers at a conference organised at the centre there by our mutual friend, uh, the great and late and inimitable Howell Tavi Edwards. Hugh Edwards, occasionally have lunch with Hugh with the Langham up here. And I frequently think of Howell Tivy as I do so. At Ferryside, Emir, of course, topped the bill. In the early 1980s, I was merely supporting the former. But we immediately struck up a friendship, and as we made our casual goodbyes, he, um, he took me out to his car. And I was lucky, because in the boot, when he opened it up, were some of his books. And he generously presented a selection of these to me, including, I well remember, a copy of Outside the House of Baal. If you prefer, Outside the House of Baal, which is the definitive epic of 20th century Wales and the greatest novel, I think, that have been produced so far by our country. And so it came to pass that the very sad experience became for me a kind of cultural conversion. That car boot had indeed provided booty. It was a veritable Aladdin's cave, <coughs> packed with treasure. And in these remarkable books I found my Wales, bilingual, bicultural, multi-regional, conflicted, internationally orientated, <coughs> but also self-maimed by being culturally suppressed and, yes, self-repressed. Well, fast forward some 20 years from 1980 to 2002. Location is the University College as it was then of North Wales Bangor. And I've been invited to write the, co the commendation on the occasion of Emir's receiving a very important award. And this is what I wrote in the commendation. Uh, it still, I think, is a reasonable summary of what I believe to be valuable about Emir. Emir, I said, has, of course, long been fascinated by the Mabinogion tales great collection of Welsh tales from the Middle Ages, showing both through a remarkable series of films, because of course he's also a documentary filmmaker, he did a series for Channel 4 back in the 1980s, he's shown through a remarkable series of films and through visionary cultural histories, because he's also a remarkable cultural historian, books such as The Crucible of Myth and The Tavisian Tradition. By all these means, Emir has shown how the stories of the Nabinogion 
Well, the answer of the colonised Welsh, these were native stories, they're the answers, the story answers of the colonised Welsh to the imperial stories of King Arthur, originally stolen from Welsh, of course, but long since become the important stories of victorious Anglo-Norman culture. Now, that identification of Abinocchio gives us an insight into Emir, I think, as a novelist. <clears throat> because the Mabinogion tales for him are resistance tales. They're tales of resistance. And that's exactly what he's been writing. Now, for <coughs> over, what would it be, 70, 80 years. He's done so in a varied form of some two dozen outstanding novels, many of them written, by the way, when he was in full-time occupation, several collections of short stories, magisterial cultural histories, many films and documentaries for television, plays written for performance by S4C, and a remarkable body of wholly distinctive poetry. I'm not quite sure the word author quite covers it here. He is so extraordinarily multifaceted. And all these stories told by these various means of the different media could be said to function in the same fundamental and indispensable way, they are meant to subvert, to undermine the official narratives and histories of Wales, made available by the occupying power of a ruling culture. Now, Emir's interest in recovering the buried mythic matter of Welsh history that may well derive from his childhood in Trelawnid, up there in the northeast corner of Wales. Trelawnid, the village, just inland really from Rill and Colwyn Bay. In Trelawnid, when he was a boy, he used to play on a hill known as the Gop. Now, beneath that hill, according to legend, was buried an early Celtic princess, someone like Bivig or Bodica or somebody like that. And Emir's work as an adult, as an artist, can be imaged as the excavating of that grave. A mining of such legendary materials as give us potent access to our larger and largely forgotten history as a people. Now the legend of the Gop may also partly explain Emir's reverent admiration for women. And if you've read his novels, you know that that's evident, not only in his fiction, but also, by the way, in his readiness to acknowledge the powerful influence on his own life of his mother, and above all, and uh, Dewey, I know, would uh, agree with us, this constant awareness of the crucial contribution his wife Eleanor has made to his work. Absolutely crucial, be impossible to overemphasize its importance. They were partners, they were collaborators in all sorts of ways. She, of course, has not survived to see Emir reach his hundred, sadly. But as well as being regarded as, as it were, a, a latter day writer of Mabinogan stories, Emir can also be thought of as a kind of figure from the Mabinogion himself, so legendary of his own achievements as a writer become. 
And just like any such hero, legendary hero, his own life has been intertwined with those of legendary figures, Richard Burton, Sean Phillips, Peter O'Toole, Graham Greene, Saunders Lewis, Kate Roberts, John Gullim Jones, R.S. Thomas, Catherine Williams, and so on. And again, like such a legendary hero, Emir had to prove equal to an epic challenge before he could win his fair-haired bride. In his case, that challenge took the form of becoming fluent in Welsh. He grew up an English speaker. And just as uh, legendary heroes frequently proved to be of royal blood, so too blood of no ordinary individuals, runs through Emil's veins because a distant cousin of his was Murray the Hump Humphreys. Some of you may remember Murray the Hump Humphreys. He was a Chicago mobster. <laughs> and he was the financial brains behind Al Capone. And he named his daughter Llewella in honour of his Welsh antecedents. But whereas Murray the Hump, unlike his boss Capone, <coughs> had the brains to stay out of prison, Emir Alas ended up behind bars. Not for encasing his enemies in concrete, but for the more serious offence of daring to refuse to pay for a television licence until progress was made in establishing a Welsh language channel. Well, that's the sort of thing I said 20 years ago. Almost um, 40 years have passed since my friendship with Emir. This won't work, will it? <coughs> try that one, shall we? Almost 40 years have passed since my friendship with Emir began uh, at Ferry Side. He's now, uh, next Monday, celebrating his 100th birthday. As far as I know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, he must, I thought, surely be the first and only, therefore, Welsh author in almost 2,000 years of Welsh cultural history to reach such a legendary age. I think of him, as I explain in the little book I published, I, I wrote that book in two months. That's out there in Emir. Why? Because nobody else was taking a blind bit of notice that our greatest figure was reaching 100. Oh, Bobby got short-term memories these days. The contemporary is all, you know. Be that as it may, I'm so glad that at least this body of individuals is choosing to remember him. I think of him as the last great survivor what I would style the heroic age of Welsh letters. Now that age ran, ran roughly, I would say, from uh, the First World War to the 1970s. How is it heroic? Well, in the sense it could boast a cohort of remarkably talented writers who chose to dedicate their talents to infusing political as well as cultural energy into a Welsh life which would be enough, they, would hope, they hoped, to arouse their country from the long torpor of its meekly subservient position within a profoundly agrocentric British polity. They were all convinced that the Welsh were, to quote Emir, a people 
lacking an inner conviction that a free nation has of existing for its own sake. And so if asked the question, well, who is Emmett Humphreys? Well, I'm partly, as I've already indicated, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to answer in legendary terms. He is, as I've said, a resistance fighter of the Welsh, a guerrilla leader, like the legendary early Welsh hero, King Arthur. He is a Gildas, our age, Gildas, you remember? The, uh, the prophet who in his satiric fictions lacerated uh, the whales of his day, excoriating her, scourging her failings <coughs> the score. And Emir, like Gildas, can skewer a character with a phrase, a phrase that encapsulates some key weakness of us all as the Welsh people. <coughs> Here he is, for instance, describing a self-satisfied character in one of his late stories, who has become a big Welsh cheese here in London. This is what he says. With Lord Parry of Penheskin, there was no means of telling whether he was pleased to see you or pleased for you to see him. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've met lots of Lord Parry somewhere or other. I know that I have. And then there's a vignette of a corporate type of a certain vintage, described like this. He was a tall man, with a roll in his gait that was sufficient to alert his staff that he had not taken on his new job in order to make their lives more comfortable. Again, I meet such every day at Swansea University. Emmett is also a connoisseur of the grotesque. There's a, a snapshot in the late short story of his of Lady Alma, who was an exotic specimen from the depths of Central Europe. Her black coiffure was in some disorder as she stood before me, her jewels flashing in the light of the chandeliers. For a moment, her prominent teeth looked as aggressive as a crocodile's. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get that up because you can see what I'm getting at. There's a lovely picture there if I can get it. Oh, there we are, look. <coughs> R.S. Thomas, looking as formidable as ever, look. Catherine Williams, looking resolute as ever. And Emir, looking elegant and urbane. Three major figures of 20th century Welsh culture. Right, so Emir, I'd say, is a satirist, a gildas, yeah. <coughs> He's also a mighty Taliesin. Do you recall the story of little Guion Bach? His servant poisoned to the witch Keridwen, and when he's stirring a cauldron full of a magic potion, he accidentally allows a drop to fall on himself, and the result, well, you remember, he's endowed with the astonishing powers of metamorphosis, shape-changing, she'd intended for her ugly son. So Keridwen, of course, is enraged. She tries to seize him. He immediately changes himself into a goose, and she counters becoming a fox. He then takes to the air as a dove, and she becomes a raptor eagle. And so on through a seemingly endless change of transformations until, of course, the end comes when he <laughs> assumes the form of a tiny grain of wheat. And quick as a flash, she becomes a hen and gobbles him up. And uh, after nine months, she delivered a baby of such wondrous beauty 
tall, yes, and fair of brow. She just can't bring herself to kill him and sets him adrift in a corrigal. And that unstable craft washes ashore, is eventually picked up and mothered by a princess until he sees adulthood. And then he emerges, this merges into his final triumphant form as the mighty wizard, Taliesin, who can assume all sorts of shapes. Well, Emir as a novelist is the mightiest shapeshifter in our cultural history. He's revealed himself to be our contemporary Taliesin. He's assumed a bewildering number of different characters in his over two dozen novels. And in the process, of course, he has demonstrated, as only a novelist perhaps can, the truth of, of my friend Di Smith's clever epigram. Di it was at Sir, I wish I'd said it, Wales is a singular noun, but a plural identity. And Emir has understood that, and his Taliesin-like powers has enabled him to convey that, the plurality of Welsh identity, in his novels. He's also been aware that adapting, that is, ducking and weaving, if you like, has been necessary to the Welsh ever since the Act of Union, in order for them to survive at all as a people. However, that's probably enough of legend for them. So let me turn to sober fact. Who is Edward Humphreys? Well, we might begin by thinking of him as a child of the border. Because he was born on the border. Now, a border is a dizzyingly strange and fascinating place. It's a frontier region. Borderlands are zones of conflict, yes. They're also regions of cultural exchange. They're markers of difference, no man's lands. Yet they unite peoples, and they are their own run place. And they produce a unique consciousness, most strikingly evident in their writers. Think of them, the Welsh connection, the border offers Dyke the marches. R.S. Thomas, reborn as a writer, as a poet, in the border country of Chirk, Amanavon, as near England as you can get. Raymond Williams, if you've ever been to Pandy, is only about two miles from the English border, near Abergavenny. Well, Raymond Williams entitled his most famous novel, of course, Border Country, about growing up in the border. And he spent his entire renowned life as a professional student of how different cultures were constituted, different ones, and how they coexisted, how they changed, how they influenced each other. And you could go on, Margaret Evans, Geraint Goodwin, W.H. Davis, Arthur Machen, all these and many more were children of the border. And so was Emmett Humphreys. He was raised in Trelawney, Flintshire. That's within spitting distance of Offa's Dyke. At least, I've said he was born and raised in Trelawney. I was wrong. He wasn't born in Trelawney or raised in Trelawney. He was born and raised in Newmarket because that was the village's name until Emir Pampsus himself as a teenager campaigned to have it changed. That was the first act of his border imagination. Following the burning of the bombing school at Penherbeth, of course, in 1936, Saunders Lewis and his associates 
Emir, who was just in sixth form at that time, had become aware that Wales was a culturally occupied country. He realised that the name Newmarket was an instance of that, a signifier of the way in which the native culture of Wales had been overwritten by English, Trelawney had been written out, and in its place it had been overwritten by replaced by Newmarket. And all of Emmy's novels constitute in a way the same act of renaming, of recovering what's been lost. Because as we know, a name is a unique identifier of identity. In it are stored the memories that constitute identity. The great novelist of, at that time, Soviet-occupied Czechoslovakia, Milan Kundera, once wisely wrote, those who wish to destroy a nation first destroy its memory. Well, rising above Trelaunid is, as I said, the Gop, that magical, mystical, prehistoric tumulus. That was Emmett's playground when he was a boy. At the top of the Gop, he could look east and see the Wirral and Liverpool. Liverpool at the time, home not to the great Liverpool teams of later, but to the equally great Everton team of the interwar period, whose hero was the incomparable altogether now, Dixie Dean. And Dixie Dean was the great hero of Emmett's family and of Emmett himself. If he looked the other direction from the Gop, went west, he was seeing Snowdonia in distant profile. And after Penurbeth, that vista, looking both ways, seemed to him to present him with an inescapable choice. Perhaps the most important word you could use of a miracle throughout his life as a person and throughout his career as a novelist is the word choice. Because that is absolutely <coughs> central to everything that he has done in his life and everything that he's written as a writer. Choice. He looked west, Snowdonia, and he knew that in order to penetrate Snowdonia, he would need to acquire Welsh, which is what he duly did, and the die was cast. I could go on talking about choice, for example. I won't mention this later, so let me mention it now. During the Second World War, at the end of it, he spent a whole year administering a huge uh, camp for displaced persons in Florence. I'll never forget talking to a man about that period, um, not least because at that time he visited Rome. And he remembers clearly being in a completely empty, deserted Sistine Chapel. Imagine that, lying on his back, staring up at the ceiling, with nobody coming near him. For a whole hour. Florence, it's actually a very centre of Florence, but I visited as a tourist not long ago. Just there was where Emmett's camp was, 12,000 people, displaced people. And he was sorely tempted at the end of that period not to return to Wales. Um, he felt he, as an author, developing already, he could cut it in what he called a balcony attitude. Looking down on it from on high and from afar, he decided not to do. I think because already he was committed to Eleanor, actually, 
he came back. Choice. Right? I could go on about that, I'll come back to it later, but choice. Choice I'm only talking about then is that early choice of his, which way to turn, which way to go, right? Because so many of his characters also choose. And choose in much the same way, in fact. If you have ever read the remarkable seven novel saga which he's written, The Land of the Living, you know it's based centrally on Amy Parry. Now, Amy Parry's an orphan. She's brought up by an aunt and uncle in the hillside hovel of Swinemanith in North East Wales, roughly where Emir therefore grew up. Goes to college at Bristol. She's swept up in the campaigning nationalist life of her closest friends. They're idealistic young would-be saviors of the languages culture in the 1930s. But she's also sexually aroused by a Welshman of a very different stamp. He's Penn Lewis, he's short, he's strong, he's swarthy, he's a belligerent South Wales minor, communist to the core. And for a while, Amy finds herself drawn into his magnetic world. Penn dies young in Spain. And so by degrees, Amy, first of all, contracts an unfortunate marriage to a closet gay, the neurotic and tormented Welsh language poet John Killeth. And then she, she segues by scarcely perceptible degrees towards the Anglophone Labour Party establishment of the ruling culture of South Wales. And by these convenient socialist means, she eventually advances to preeminence, prominence on the London scene. And she ends up a stately and bejeweled old lady revelling in her grand status as Lady Brandor, because she had now been married into English nobility. Now, for Emily Humphreys, it is a classic rerun of the core disaster story of Welsh history from the Act of Union of the present day. For the talented and ambitious, all roads to fulfilment and success have invariably led away from Wales to London, and thus by subtle degrees to contented assimilation. And the supreme example of this, of course, for Emmer, was the astonishing career of Lloyd George. From young Welsh nationalist, believe it or not, to overlord, supremo, of the whole vast world of the English Empire. He, after all, had chosen to move from England to Wales. From the Wirral, not to London. Uh, sorry, he'd, he'd chosen to, to move from Wales to England. His antithesis or opposite was Saunders Lewis. Emmett Humphreys is a great hero all his life. Emmett Humphreys was born on the Wirral, <laughs> okay? But he moved not to London, but to Wales, perversely. And eventually settled, ultimately actually, in Penarth, near Cardiff. And that was, of course, the example that Emmett himself chose to follow and chose to make. Well, that sounds, makes it sound quite simple, but it's not, of course, it's a novel. And the point about Amy Parry is you, you end up with divided feelings about her. On the one hand, she is, as I described her, an opportunist who makes her way to all the right places. But she was an orphan. That's not what makes you aware, the sequence does. An orphan learns early. She's got to make her own way in the world. She can survive. She can survive by whatever means she can. Looked at like that, Amy's history is a sympathetic one, even a heroic one, because she does make good. She actually is able to use the fact of her being almost abandoned as a little one, turning it to remarkable 
advantage of self-making, as we would say, these days. Emir has always understood both sides of that. Because when he was in that prisoner of war camp, which is, sorry, really, it was the displaced uh, persons camp, I'm sorry, he'd seen both types, both experiences. He'd seen the peasants who'd been removed from their homes, of course, by war, desperate to get back. And through them, he understood rootedness, what it means to feel attached to a place, to be identified with it, to want to go back to it. He'd also seen the opposite. He'd seen those who, yes, had been uprooted, but couldn't wait to go elsewhere and start anew. Whether that be the United States, which is what many of them are wanted to go, or Israel. Because lots of, 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 of those in, the, in, in that camp were Jewish. And they had sympathy with their wish to go to the, uh, the promised land. So he understood very well this division in human experience and human nature. And that too is what he captures, for example, in the Land of the Living series. And that's why in, the, in that series, as in all his fiction, he is cultivated, to use a big word, indeterminacy of judgment. That is, you can't easily decide on the kind of judgment you ought to make of characters and events. And by the way, that's a, a, a technique he partly learned from Brecht. Because in the 50s and 60s, Emir had a, a distinguished career as a producer of um, television for radio and uh, a, a producer of, of plays for radio and television. That's when he worked with uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole and Sean Phillips. And Brecht was big, of course. Brecht's idea, remember, was that the, the, the author should distance himself or herself, yeah? Not as it would show himself or herself in the actual play. Hold himself or herself back so that the audience would decide how to interact and react to what they were seeing. And that is a technique that Emir has adopted through much of his fiction. He forces us, if we're Welsh people, to see ourselves in those novels. And what we're seeing is the choice we ourselves have made or are making in our lives. Choice. I said about the early choice he made on the Gorp. I've mentioned the choice he made in Florence. I should also mention the choice he made here in London. Because that too is important. This is him, by the way, you can see there, yeah? The, the Evelyn Williams, yeah? Richard Burton, Sean Phillips. See them all okay? And that's Emil, of course, there, uh, reading a script to them. This is a period of his uh, working with the BBC. Choice. Um, yeah, he came back from Italy at the end of the war, in the end. And soon he and uh, his new young wife, Eleanor, were settled in London. He was teaching at a grammar school here. And uh, that was an important period for him, because at the time he was a coming young talent. He was resident at fashionable Chelsea. He lionised uh, on sophisticated, he was lionised the sophisticated metropolitan literary circuit, his heady stuff. He had T.S. Eliot for near neighbour. He became close friends 
with Pamela Hansford Johnson and Charles Snow. He went to their wedding. C.P. Snow. He was an ardent theatre goer. He saw Olivier and Thorndike and, and Gielgud studying their stuff. He was a close associate of brilliant young artistic talents such as Patrick Heron and Terry Frost. He was already a novelist with several acclaimed novels. He was, of course, the admired protege of Graham Greene. In short, he had the London literary world at his feet. And what did he go and do? He turned his back on it and made his way back to Wales. Not just to Wales, but to the remoteness of the Clean Peninsula, where he became a humble schoolmaster. Where did he make that choice? Well, partly because he had, as we've seen, already committed himself to making it, partly because his uh, late wartime service had taught him a lot about how important roots could be to a people and to individuals and to a family. And mostly, of course, because he was married to Eleanor. Uh, I don't know the day he was born then, but it was about the time he was starting a family and he wanted to bring that family up in Wales, make sure that it was well-speaking or bilingual. So he, he chose to go back, and that, of course, is where he remained. Um, I should add one other thing, that when he came back from Florence, he came back fully committed as a Welsh European. He always has thought of himself as a European novelist. When he was in Italy, he learned Italian fluently, Indeed, when I visited him not so long ago, uh, he was reading Dante in the original uh, with a Welsh translation by Daniel Rees from the early 20th century by his side. Uh, he knew many of the important Welsh uh, uh, Italian novelists of the post-war period. Um, he was an admirer of Montale, translated some of Montale's work. He was interested in Italian film and filmed by other renowned European directors. He always <coughs> thought of himself as a Welsh European, which is like by the way with Ross Lewis, of course, was trying to make the Welsh see that they were part of Europe. For me, I may as well show my colours. I think Brexit is a disaster. Mm. And uh, what it will do to Wales, I, I shudder to, to imagine. Before leaving this uh, London Welsh business, Quickly, let me explain that it comes out very interestingly in a, a small masterpiece of his late period, a little novella called Jones. If you haven't read it, you might be intrigued by it if you live in London. It's about a London Welshman, Goronui Jones, left Wales and made good in London as a teacher and as a collector. One thing, when he was younger, he was a collector of women. He was a womanizer. But uh, he was careful not to get attached. Remained a bachelor. Because what he really loved collecting were Benin heads. And he had a wonderful collection of these. In his little flat. Surrounded himself, himself with narcissistically, therefore, delighting in what he'd, the object d'art that he'd acquired. Trouble is, of course, he in effect psychologically became shut in by exactly what he'd assembled. So by the end of the uh, novel, he is aging and he's ailing. 
he calls Wales the mixture still of contempt and of uh, yearning. Uh, his women friends, of course, by now have passed away or moved on to other relationships. He's on his own. Nobody wants even to look at his collection anymore. He's a sad figure. Now, in one sense, therefore, he's a negative portrayal uh, of, 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 of uh, what happens if you abandon your background completely and you opt to become assimilated into a world that ultimately you still know to be foreign, different to yourself. But in another sense, again, as with Amy Parry, it's a sympathetic picture because the novel also makes it clear that had John stayed at home in Wales, he would have been staying where he'd been physically abused as a boy by his father. He'd have been staying where all his aesthetic instincts, and they're evident in the novel, would have been frustrated, stifled, because Wales was, still is, a deeply philistine country. Suddenly he got much time or room for his seats. Even the visual arts to this day are not as highly valued in Wales as they should be. Jones would have also been left isolated and his talents unfulfilled had he stayed at home. It's not an easy, easy call. And so as with Amy Paddy, you end up with mixed feelings about Jones, who just as it were causes you to reflect upon the, the price that might be paid, whatever choice in the end you make. I could go on talking, I've probably gone on long enough. I could talk about Amir again as a border person. Um, when Brian Martin Davis, a very talented young poet in his day, left Ammanford, went to live in Wrexham, immediately he knew he was on the border and began to write about that experience. And a line he came out with, which will help you understand Amir's novels, is he was writing about the border. What he wrote was, Anon, my feel. The border is within us. And that is probably as profound an insight as you can get into the condition of contemporary wills. It is internally divided in all sorts of ways. And that is what Emmett has also tried to explore. And you can uh, go a stage further because those of us who are bilingual and bicultural, no, we're not one being, we're two beings. I'm different when I speak Welsh. I speak English because I'm a native speaker. My culture is different in many ways, depending on which self I'm being. That doesn't mean to say that there's no link between them, very complex matter there is, interactions, but I am divided and not my affin. And I have to be very good at exploring that. He's known it in himself and he's explored it very well in his fiction. And it's this quality of Emmett Humphreys that means he can still talk to young people, young readers, young writers of today. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of listening, as Dewey did, to Tristan Hughes, a brilliant young novelist from Wales of our, of our time. And what he said was very interesting. He was talking in Cardiff about Emmett Humphreys and what Humphreys meant to him. He, like Emmett, lives in, uh, uh, on Anglesey. That's where Emir has been living for many years. Just down the road, really, from Emir. His father is a native of Anglesey. His mother is Canadian. Tristan has grown up visiting or living in both backgrounds. He's a border writer. 
that his border is the Atlantic Ocean. Half has now also been written about Wales, half has also been written about Canada. So when he reads Emir Humphreys, he recognises himself there. He immediately knows himself, sees himself in what he's reading. So he can still recognise himself in Emir Humphreys, even though they're separated by 70 years in terms of life experience. Right, um, I'm ending now. I just want to end with a, a personal reminiscence. Um, on Saturday we got a day conference at Swansea University to celebrate his work and um, anticipating that I went through all the papers, masses and masses of them I've got from all my my correspondence and other like with Emir, and I'm now going to give all that to the university as a, as a gift. Um, and that'll be happening on, um, on Saturday. And going through all those papers, I came across a letter Sons Lewis had written to Emir Humphreys after Sons Lewis had read um, House Arthur's of Bale. And uh, what uh, he says in that letter is that reading House Arthur's of Bale Make, make, made him realise that Emir Humphreys was the Isaac Barshevi singer of Wales. Now, how many of you remember Isaac Barshevi's singer? Won the Nobel Prize. 1978. Fascinating writer. He is a, a Jew born in Poland. His father's a rabbi. He grew up, therefore, in Eastern Europe. And um, that really tells you a lot about his writing. Let me tell you something. There is a statue to a um, singer in Lublin. Lublin is a city in Poland, southeast of Warsaw. I spent a week there about a dozen years ago. And uh, it was an unforgettable experience for one reason. After I lectured in South University, I was taken on a tour of the city. And I went to one corner of the city. And there were streets, grand houses. Every one of them was shuttered, deserted. And you know why? That was the Jewish ghetto. So, those who had lived there, a few had gone to the States, the rest had gone to the concentration camp. Concentration camp was outside the city still. You could visit it. I decided not to. That was the lost world of Isaac Bashevi's singer that I saw. It's unforgettable. Now you might say, well, nothing like that at all in Wales. That of course isn't. Saunders didn't at all mean that. But Singer moved to the United States just before the pogroms. What did he do in the States? He wrote novels about what? Poland. What language did he write in? Yiddish. Well, Yiddish was the language of the ghettos. Do you know that the greatest body of Yiddish literature has been published in the United States? Well, it has. 
Singer was a great writer of Yiddish, translated into English. Enormous immediate success. He was the chronicler of a lost world. I never forget reading, I went to Lublin, a wonderful memoir by, I never heard a singer then, In My Father's Court. Read it. Wonderful evocation of what it is like to grow up in uh, a ghetto uh, in Poland, where his father, of course, was the rabbi. The court was the rabbi's court. So he was a chronicler of the lost world. And I end by saying, so is Emir Humphreys. The world he's chronicled most powerfully, in my opinion, and I speak personally as I am, is the world of nonconformist Wales, Chapel Wales, Wales I grew up in. And uh, I wrote a whole book about it a few years ago in the shadow of the pulpit. And the novel in which he surpasses himself in evoking our world, its strengths, yes, its weaknesses too. Everything that was rich about that world, as well as everything that was confining, restrictive, repressive. The great work which does all that is outside the house of Baal. If you ever read it, you know that at the centre of it is this remarkable portrait of J.T. Miles. I'm not going to bore you with the plot. But you end up with a novel, I still don't know what I make of him. <laughs> Many think of him as an utter idiot. Others think of him as a holy fool in the Dostoevsky tradition. He seems to cause ruin wherever he goes. And yet there is undoubtedly a core of goodness to him. And it is an attempt to be good, to be true to that good, that he causes this havoc. Uh, and so on. Uh, he is a wonderful, wonderful creation. And I end with a passage at the end of that novel which gives you some sense of what I mean when I say that it is a, is a moving chronicle of a lost world. It's where JT, an old man, and old age has never been better portrayed than it is in those of Bale, is an old man. And uh, he is trying to master a newfangled machine. This now was the 1960s, 1970s, no, 1960s. A tape recorder, state-of-the-art technology of the day, okay? Yeah, I've got a clue how to use it. <laughs> He's 80. Fumbles away at it. Why is he doing it? Because he wants to send a message to his relatives. Where are they living? In the USA. Huh? And he does <laughs> his best with this. And then he has a, somebody in to help. And it becomes clear thereafter, it's not the machine is the real problem. The problem for JT is finding words to talk to these strangers in a different world of a different generation. I mean, the only words he's got to be with him are the words of a preacher. He's been a preacher all his life. But they're atheists. How do you talk to atheists when you're a devoted preacher? Anyway, this is the 80-year-old old man. He cleared his throat and he began. This is your uncle Joseph speaking. It's strange to think that my words will will be reaching you across the wide ocean by, by means 
by means by these means I don't know you and you don't know me but I'm very happy to send you a message because we are closely related we are bound into the same family by the bonds of love you know I am a preacher so you'll not blame me for preaching after all this is a message and any message I send to you should be worth having just as uh, uh, the distance between us is annihilated by this this uh, this device and I'm speaking now when you're hearing so it is with the means of salvation that quickens our lives with purpose and meaning JT will overcome my emotion his mouth opened and shut as he wept the microphone was recording nothing but the faint sob in his heavy breathing John Henry slid off the side of the bed and switched off the machine. JT nodded as he stared at the spools, which were now still. Well, I find that very moving. It's poised between comedy, you know. <laughs> it's great distance, but we related, you know. Uh, and poignancy. If Emmett had published no more than us out as a veil, he'd be our greatest novelist in Wales. He's actually published 23 more novels. Remarkable. And that, in my estimation, makes him a true giant of our culture. So here's two Emmett Humphreys at 100. Pembroke Happy's Emmett. A diochon gyfraniad amrys a dwi. A chwbl in digru. In diwylliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You will find more of our podcasts on cumradorian.org.